we have been blessed abundantly already. Amen. Does everyone see the finger of God in our church? Yes. Amen. Turn again to Ephesians chapter 1 with me. Jesus said if casting out devils that he did was done by the Spirit of God, then no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you and what he did was by the finger of God. And we just saw some things done very well that should encourage, comfort, and exhort all of us. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, referred to it earlier this morning, but we are dealing with the assurance of our eternal life. We sang, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And we want to believe that. And we do that by running to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and embracing Him, and then taking up His cross daily, and then keeping His commandments, because He said, if you love me, ye will keep my commandments. In Ephesians chapter 1, I want to take us back briefly to where we were last Lord's Day and remind us of the order that the Scriptures teach so that we will fully appreciate where our faith, our repentance, our baptism, our good works fit into salvation. They are the evidences and the results of it. They are not the conditions, nor the instruments, nor the means of it. We looked at a number of passages last week about the grammar of the Bible, the grammar of the doctrine of regeneration. John is the gospel writer that speaks about faith and believing on Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not. John does repeatedly, but he tells us why when we get to the first epistle, where he wrote, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And he goes on to teach in that first epistle, very plainly, that faith, righteousness, and loving the brethren are the three great evidences of eternal life that he taught. Peter teaches another list. Paul gives another list in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. But we can make our election and our calling sure by doing those things. And I showed you the grammar of it in First John chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. All of them teach that those things are the results and evidences of eternal life, not conditions or means or instruments for them. I appreciated some of you delighting in that again. And uh, there's a document that would help you even further with it. But let's come here to Ephesians chapter 1. And we know the passage 3 through 12. I have read to you 13 and 14 this morning already. Verses 3 through 6 describe God's choice in verse 4, God's predestination in verse 5, to this end in verse 6, that to the praise of the glory of His grace, God has made us accepted in the Beloved. Your eternal life and your salvation depends upon God accepting you. The common Arminian, easy believism, decisional salvation doctrine taught in the world today is that it is our choice and our decision or our accepting of Jesus that gets us saved. The Bible doesn't teach that in a single verse. There's no verse that says accept Jesus as your personal Savior and get saved. It says here that God's choice of us to salvation before the world began 
before the foundation of the world was that we would be in Christ where God could and would accept us. Because in Christ we are holy and without blame. Outside of Christ we are foolish and workers of iniquity and hated. The Bible says in Psalm 5.5, Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. No one wants to preach the text. No one wants to read the text. No one wants to delight in the text. But we delight in it as much as Moab is my wash pot. Because if God loves everyone equally, and most of those that He loves end up being tormented with eternal torment under His wrath and judgment, His love is not very meaningful. In fact, it's blasphemous. And so we reject it. The only ones that God can love are the ones He chose in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world so that they would be holy and without blame before Him in love. That's how He loves sinners. He puts them in Christ so that He views them by an eternal union with Jesus Christ as in Christ under His righteousness and with the righteousness of Christ. Thus they are the objects of His eternal affection so that He can write of them, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He will tell the wicked in the great day of judgment, I never knew you. What does that say about His degree of love for them? He never loved them. I never knew you. That does not mean he had no omniscience of them. He knew every detail about them. But he had no affectionate relationship toward them. And so he will say, I never knew you. Brethren, verse 6 of Ephesians 1 is a wonderful text that to the praise of the glory of his grace, he did not do it for us. He did it for himself. He hath made us accepted in the beloved. God chose us in Christ predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. We are His. This morning I started out with verses 13 and 14. Someone owns you. Does that excite you? Someone owns you. God owns you. He owns you body, soul, and spirit through the purchase of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's coming back to get all of you. When He comes back and says, Come forth! You'll come forth. Your body will come forth. Your spirit will already be with Him. And we shall be together with the Lord, body, soul, and spirit for eternity. But I want you to notice, before we move further, that verse 6 says, God has made us accepted in the Beloved. That means God has accepted us in Christ Jesus, who is His beloved Son. And how did that all occur? Because He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. There is an eternal union, hardly understood, no longer taught, that all our fathers in the faith understood and believed that before the foundation of the world, before God created Adam and Eve, we were in an eternal union with the Lord Jesus Christ. It can never be broken. We are His forever and ever, and He is ours. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, The Apostle Paul will refer to this acceptance or another aspect of it in his labors as an apostle. 2 Corinthians 5.9 Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be accepted of Him. Notice who's doing the accepting and who's being accepted. God's doing the accepting. Paul is being accepted. 
I want to be accepted by God. I want you to know that you're accepted by God. What does the Bible tell us? Is there a verse that gives me some evidence that God has accepted me? Acts chapter 10. This is what Peter said to Cornelius when he first met him. These are his opening words after Peter has raised up Cornelius because he's trying to worship him. And Cornelius explains why he sent for Peter. Acts chapter 10 and verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Now we are of the wrong nation, brethren. Peter didn't want to go help Cornelius. The Lord had to have a little lunchtime show and tell with him. With that sheet that descended from heaven with all kind of unclean beast. And the Lord saying by his angel, Slay, arise and slay and eat. And Peter understood that as he finished that show and tell lesson. And there was a knock at the gate where there were Gentiles seeking Peter's presence. And so Peter went to Caesarea and met with Cornelius. And this is what he said. God is working with him and opening things up to him. And at the Council of Jerusalem, Peter will explain, this is the event that opened the gospel up to the Gentiles. And Peter's understanding by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of a truth, things have changed. Uh, There's an addition to the truth that we haven't believed in the past. I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. God doesn't care about this Jew-Gentile distinction and division that we have emphasized so much in our circles, Peter is saying. And in the next verse, but in, in contrast to that respect of persons that the Jews were notorious for, in every nation, whether the Roman nation, because Cornelius was what? He was of the Italian band. He was an Italian of the Italian band, and we are Americans of the American band, if you will. In every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Fearing God and working righteousness are present tense verbs there, and is accepted is a perfect tense verb construction, meaning that God had accepted anyone that fears him and does righteousness before they feared him and did the righteousness. That perfect tense means that the action of accepting them was perfected before the present. That's why it's called the present perfect tense. If you don't want to agree with me, then what you have to do is say this, that in order to be accepted with God, you have to fear Him and work your own righteousness. Do you want to take that position? Thank you, Lord. Do you want to know if God has accepted you? Because when you stand before Him, what is going to count is His acceptance of you. Do you want to know for the assurance of your eternal life that God has accepted you? Then fear Him and work righteousness. How do we fear God? It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the knowledge of the holy. It is described throughout the Bible of trembling in our reverence and love and devotion to God and our willingness to do anything for Him. An angel 
cried out on behalf of God to Abraham in this position. Now I know that thou fearest me. What are you not willing to give up for the Lord? What habits do you have that you are holding on to and you're not willing to give up for the Lord? If you truly fear God, you are able to hit the silver lever on any of them and flush them. What thoughts displease God? You should be in such reverence and and delighting in Him and loving Him that you would flush any thoughts contrary to His Word. Contrary to Him. That is the fear of God. You will guard your vessel. You will control yourself sexually. Abraham was in a country where he lied about Sarah, and when confronted about it, he said, I didn't think there was any fear of God here. Now his his logic and his reasoning is a little questionable if you go back and read it, but that's not my point, so I'm going to ignore it. The point is that if men fear God, they respect marriage. Is everyone with me? This is the fear of the Lord. What was Cornelius doing that showed his fear of God? He was praying always. He was giving alms to the people. Now that's moving into working righteousness. But his whole house feared the Lord. He had led his family. He was almost like Joshua. As for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. Even though he was a Roman soldier, centurion of the Italian band. There's the verse, brethren, verse 35. He that feareth him and worketh righteousness. We are strange birds when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, especially as Baptists. You know, the average person is told, if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior sometime in your life, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what happens to you. If you die, you're going to be in heaven. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches us that faith without works is devilish and worthless. James would tell us that Genesis 15.6 that Paul used so extensively in Romans and Galatians is really not worth much because James was dealing with a different audience than Paul was dealing with. Paul was dealing with Jewish legalists And if he could take a verse from the Old Testament that would show these Jewish legalists that before circumcision was ordained and before the law of Moses was given, God had already declared Abraham to be a just man. He used the text. And he used it often. But James didn't have Jewish legalists to worry about. James had carnal believers that he was dealing with. So he told them Abraham wasn't justified until long after circumcision. And that's when he took Isaac to offer him on the altar. James 2. We may get to it today. Oh, brethren, how can we know that we're accepted with God? To fear God. I'm not going to preach a sermon to you right now about the fear of God. But the fear of God is delighting in Him, loving Him, trembling before Him, but not with paranoia. Not running and hiding in the trees of the garden like Adam. But running to Him and grabbing His feet and begging for forgiveness of your sins. It is the desire not to displease Him, but to please Him. It is the desire to praise Him and not offend Him. It is the desire to do whatever He wants for your life. It is the desire for you to exalt Him and magnify Him. It is the fear of the Lord. 
And to work righteousness is to find out what the Bible teaches on how you should live and live accordingly. And when a person does that, then he knows that he has been accepted with God. In our vernacular, today, we would say has been accepted. We wouldn't use the construction of a passive voice, past tense verb, with a present tense verb helper. We would say has been accepted. And a number of reputable Greek authorities will say the same, though we couldn't care less about their agreement or disagreement. Men have lied in various languages from the beginning of the world. And they will lie in any language, or they will tell the truth in any language. And what we have to do is humble ourselves before the Word of God, see what is there, and believe it. There is no other way you can look at the text. Otherwise, you end up with getting accepted by God on the basis of your righteousness. And that isn't the basis of acceptance with God. It's the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we want more than just bare belief. We want so much more. Jesus is going to say to so many in the great day of judgment, as they cry, Lord, Lord! Oh, they're going to call Jesus Lord. But he's going to say, I never knew you. He says about that day, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But who will enter into the kingdom of heaven according to that text? Matthew 7, 21. He that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. That's working righteousness. That's fearing God. He that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So then Jesus Christ will turn and say, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. He's not going to say, Depart from me, ye that didn't accept me as your personal Savior. He's going to say, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, because in the sight of God they are still workers of iniquity, because they were never chosen in Christ to be without blame and spotless. And he's going to say he never knew them, but to those that do the will of my Father which is in heaven, that is the evidence of eternal life. No one gets to heaven based on what they have done to please God. No one gets to heaven by their works of righteousness, but we're talking about the assurance of eternal life. How can you know that you are saved? By a changed life that is based on the fear of God and the love of God and doing righteousness and doing the will of our Heavenly Father. Look at John chapter 2. John chapter 2. I was raised to believe that what I had done when I was three was sufficient and there wasn't really anything else to worry about. Of course, I ought to be a good boy because Santa was looking for good boys. I was taught more than that. But Santa was looking for good boys. My father's here, so I ought to be respectful and reverent. And he knows how I meant that. John, chapter 2. John, chapter 2. This should cause those who think that a momentary act of faith is inadequate, since it's never described in the Bible as having saving power, Because James mocks it as nothing but what the devils do, except they do it better. The devils tremble when they believe about the Lord Jesus Christ and they come and worship Him at His feet and declare that He is the Holy One of God. But for all those that put so much stock in their little momentary act of faith, instead of reading what the Bible says about making your calling and election sure, these are the places that should cause us to be warned by the Word of God. James... 
John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name. When they saw the miracles which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus knew that they were false believers and their belief didn't mean a thing. And that should cause people who are looking back at some act of faith to wonder if they were just like these in John chapter 2. Therefore, faith without works is dead. And we want to add to our faith virtue and knowledge and godliness and temperance and patience and brotherly kindness and charity, just like the Bible teaches us. That is not enough. Look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Oh, this chapter is full of believers. They want to make the Lord Jesus Christ king. The dispensationalist said that Jesus Christ came to be king, but the Jews rejected him from being king. So he went away, came up with a secondary plan called the church age, and he'll come back when they're willing to accept him as king in some millennial age. But they tried to make him king in John chapter 6, but he didn't want to be their king. John chapter 6, that's... Look at these other believers. Verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet, that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Look at this. Here are people that say, Jesus must be that prophet that was to come into the world. That prophet was from Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses said, God is going to raise you up a prophet like unto me, and he's going to send him to you. Since you have said that you do not want God speaking to you when he was thundering from Mount Sinai, Moses used that to say, God has heard you. He's going to send a prophet like unto me who will bring the words of God to you. And that's the one mediator there is between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So they were on track and they wanted to make him king. And was Jesus king? He was king. But he wasn't going to be their king because they didn't really believe in him. And so he began poking them a little bit. They followed him. He tried to get away from them. They came after him because they had found a free lunch. And people that get a free lunch want to find the next free lunch because they don't like to work. So they keep looking for free lunches and pursuing those free lunches. And they did that with Jesus. So when he saw that, he said things to them like this. As when they asked him in verse 28, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. But they weren't going to believe on him because the only ones that could believe on him were the ones that God had drawn to him. Look at verse 44. No man can come to me, which is to believe on Christ, except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. These are God's elect. They're described in verse 37. Uh, As a child, I remember memorizing verse 37 in Bible school, but in Bible school... The, the John 6.37 that I memorized was, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Now, I was capable of a few more words than that, but that was what I was limited to. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Because, see, the first half of that verse gives people problems. 
It's no problem to them if a man can save himself. But they don't like the idea of God saving men. But the first half of the verse is God saving men by Himself. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Who are the ones that the Father gave Christ? The elect of God from Ephesians chapter 1. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So there's an order. God chose some to be Jesus Christ's sheep, and they come to him, and Jesus will never cast them out. But there was a whole crowd here that came to Jesus wanting another free lunch. And so Jesus begins to poke them and tell them, why are you looking for bread? I'm the bread of God that came down from heaven. A man needs to eat of me. He needs to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now they're hearing this cannibalistic sermon and it is disturbing them and frustrating them. And if you read through this chapter, Jesus is after them. Just he was, he was excellent at this because the Lord gave him the tongue of the learned. And when he figured out his audience, he would take them to task for the wickedness that was in their hearts. These were not sincere believers. So he gives them a doctrine that is very difficult for them to even hear, let alone to understand. And so he talks about them needing to drink his blood and eat his flesh. And here, here, there, look at verse 52. The Jews therefore strove among themselves. I mean, they were just all worked up into a frenzy saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they weren't catching on to the lesson of believing on him. And then he says, this is that bread which came down from heaven, verse 58, and so forth. And his disciples came to him and said, Lord, Lord, we don't know what happened in your sermon preparations, but you're a little too hard for the audience. Verse 60, many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? Verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said, let me back up and say it in a simpler way to you. Did Jesus say anything like that? No. No. He got worse. He said in verse 62, What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? What did they really know about Jesus of Nazareth at this time? He was a prophet that could do miracles and that he was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. His father or legal father was Joseph and his mother was Mary. And he says, What and if... I were to rise up into heaven where I was before. Oh, that just blew their minds again. And he says in verse 61, It is the Spirit that quickeneth. They didn't have that. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. They were spiritual words of the truth of the gospel that they could not and would not believe. And so then he says it plainly, verse 64, There are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him, and that's why he left. And therefore he repeats it, that no man can come unto him or believe on him unless God draws him, in verse 65, and then look what it says. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. When the truth of the gospel is preached in its entirety and preached boldly in its entirety, many of those who claim to be Christians will deny that gospel and walk away from it because it's a hard saying for them. They want it easy. They want a praise band. They want a lot of noise. They want some gyrating. They want some enthusiasm. They want some free food. They want coffee joe in the lobby instead of what we get right here in John chapter 6. 
when those people, when those believers, remember these are believers that walked away, Jesus said unto the twelve believers in their eyes, believers in the words, but Jesus knew they weren't real believers. Jesus turns to the twelve and says, will ye also go away? Now he had thinned his crowd down considerably. Do you know how many had been fed in the first part of this chapter? 5,000, not counting women and children. And now he turns to 12. Will ye go away also? And now we have someone that has some spirit. And I mean the Holy Spirit. We have someone who understands. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe. We believe. We believe. You know, when he said that in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of Jonas, you have not received that by men, but from my Father which is in heaven. Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father which is in heaven. We believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and are, are you willing to obey him? like Saul of Tarsus did? Are you willing to obey Him like Peter did? Are you willing to be confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ like Peter was confronted when Jesus said to him, Simon, lovest thou me more than these? He is confronting you right now if you want to be a true believer in Jesus Christ. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ more than the rest of this assembly? Be confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm His ambassador. Do you love Him more than the rest of this assembly? When Jesus asked Simon, Do you love me more than these? He was not asking Peter, Do you love me more than this catch of fish you have just brought to shore by my miracle? He was not asking, Do you love me more than you love these other apostles? He was asking him, Do you love me more than these other apostles love me? Because Peter had laid claim to that the night in which he was betrayed and taken. And now Jesus was asking him, and he's asking all of us right now, do you love him? Will you, like Peter, then hear the Lord say that Peter would die for him? Are you willing to die for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you willing to give up the things of this life for him? Then you're a true believer. We only want true believers. We only want to know about true believers. Look at John chapter 7. There's a lot of false believers, brethren. Faith is such a weak evidence. Devils believe. Devils believe and tremble. Devils believe and confess. You ought to hear people go to Romans 10, 9 through 13 and say, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Satan and every single one of his devils believe both and do both. They fell at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life and said, we know thee who thou art. Thou art the Holy One of God, and art thou come to torment us before the time. They know, they believe, and they confess. (laughs) No wonder when Paul's saying, "Brethren, uh, knowing, brethren, your election of God, he didn't talk anything about such weak evidence. But when you're dealing with legalistic Jews in Romans chapter 10, elect Jews of God that were still bound up in the animal sacrificial system of Moses, Perfect way to put it, to get them started. And then they would have heard the rest of the gospel, and that is to add to your faith the list of seven other things in Second Peter chapter 1. Right. 
John chapter 7 is another example. You know, this gospel that is given so, that has so much emphasis on believing also tells us that there's a whole lot of false believers in the same gospel. John 7, 31, and many of the people believed on him and said, what did they say? When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? Now see, that's just a bunch of doctrinal confusion. They don't really know who Jesus is. And the Apostle Paul warned us that there's another Jesus in the world and another gospel and another spirit. So we want to be careful about our faith. John chapter 8. John 8 verse 30. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. Now we've got the Holy Spirit telling us twice that many believed on him. And they're Jews believing on him. And he says to them, if ye continue in my word... Then are ye my disciples indeed. Since you haven't done anything to show that you're a disciple yet, since believing on me does not prove that you're a disciple, if you'll continue in my word, if you will hear my gospel and do it, you can show that you're a disciple indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now he knew exactly what to say. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou? Ye shall be made free. Jesus knew their hearts, that they weren't true believers, that they were trusting in Abraham as their father for eternal life. And so he provokes them with those few short phrases, and he gets this response. This response was drowned out twice before they could get it completely enunciated to him by the clank of Roman iron boots on their streets. What in the world were they talking about? They were confused naturally, and they were confused spiritually. They were in bondage to Rome. Jesus said, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. What's he saying about them? You are in bondage, and you do need freedom. And he goes on down through here and pokes them a little bit. He admits to them in verse 37, I know that you're Abraham's seed. I know that your birth certificate says that if we traced it back far enough, we would find Abraham, but ye seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. You know, I don't have more time here in this chapter. He He tells this group of believers. This is a group of believers. It's a large group of believers. It says many believed on him. He tells this group of believers in verse 44, ye are of your father the devil. And the lusts of your father ye will do. Then he says in verse 47, to contrast them from true believers, he that is of God heareth God's words. What is the order there? Do you hear God's words in order to be of God? Or must God make you of him before you can hear God's words? Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Ye are of your father the devil, and those are the two races of mankind, the children of the devil and the children of God. Where do the children of God come from? The predestinating adoption that we read about in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. Praise to the glory of His grace. If it had not been for the grace of God to make us of Him and to open our eyes and ears and hearts and minds and to draw us to Him, we would never believe on Christ. All the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Go to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and say, We are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We love you, Lord. And with the Apostle Paul say, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And be willing to do anything he asks of you. This is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, Let's move on. 
May God bless what I'm about to tell you to the excitement of your souls. There's a lordship controversy going on today where these people that believe in decisional regeneration and decisional salvation have watered their little rote prayer down until it says nothing. And if you add anything to it, then you are following the law, you're being legalistic, and you're taking people to hell. These Arminians accuse John MacArthur, who's basically an Arminian. doesn't matter what he says about himself. He's such a weak Calvinist. But let's call him a weak Calvinist to be gentle and respectful to a man that I do respect in some respects. These, these free grace folks, they call themselves free grace. In the past, do you know what free grace always referred to? People that believed in the full sovereignty of God. But now they use the expression free grace to describe that grace is free in this respect. You no longer have to say that Jesus is Lord. You no longer have to repent. There is no commitment of lifestyle. There is absolutely nothing except, I want to go to heaven and Jesus is my Savior. It's incredible. It's disgusting. What I want to do right now in a few minutes is show you that in the Bible, faith and repentance are inseparable. Yep. Right. And do you know, get ex- maybe you won't get excited. Now you're going to see your pastor's youthfulness. Or, that's a nice word. I got so excited in studying this. Do you know what devils don't do? Where are you, brother? You want to come up here? They don't repent! They don't repent. When did the devil ever fall at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, we know who thou art, the Son of God. I hate my sins and everything I've done for the devil for the last 4,000 years. Will you forgive me? Oh, sweet. If you can repent, if you'll repent, if you'll turn from one thing in your life today, you will show that God has peradventure stepped forth and spoken a word to you. Isn't that wonderful? Faith. What are they talking about? Don't add repentance or you're taking people to hell. These free grace people think John MacArthur is taking people to hell because he adds repentance to faith. Unbelievable. That's what you get when you err from the crown of the road and go into the ditch of decisional salvation. Once you get in the ditch of decisional salvation, you're going to water down that decision until it's worthless. Well, until it's worth. I didn't mean that. It was always worthless. Because decisions don't mean anything to God. It's a changed life. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Circumcision or uncircumcision, it doesn't matter. But faith, which worketh by love. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. Peter would say, if you want to make your calling and election sure, then add to your faith. And he gives seven things to add to it. James would say, "Can can faith save a man? No. No. Faith cannot save a man. Thou hast faith, and I have works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Can you show me your faith without works? No. Repentance, my my brethren. Get, Get ready with your Bibles. Oh, thank you, Lord, for our King James Bibles. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. There's so many places we could turn. You know what John the Baptist did when he came in to the wilderness of Judea? He was preaching the baptism of faith. 
The baptism of repentance. That's why he said, Cousin, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, No. For right now, let's fulfill all righteousness by being me, my me being an example. And if John would have thought through it clearly, he would have known that he needed to baptize him because that was when God was going to reveal and manifest him to the whole nation. Because when he came up out of the water, did something pretty powerful happen? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus elevated right up out of the water. The Holy Spirit came down from heaven on his head. Oh, and John said, behold, the Lamb of God. Because he had been told, you just keep baptizing until you baptize someone that the Spirit comes down and stays upon. And he said, this is the Son of God. And Andrew heard him say that. Here's Andrew, a disciple of John the Baptist. He's watching his master baptize this man that comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit comes down. This thundering noise from heaven. And Andrew says, see you later, John. And he goes and gets Peter and follows Jesus. And I don't mean to be disrespectful at all to John the Baptist. Jesus said he was the greatest ever born of a woman. Ordinary birth. Jesus was the greatest ever born of a woman. Extraordinary birth. But John was the greatest of ordinary birth. But I want to tell you something. Jesus would say that everyone sitting in this assembly is greater than John the Baptist. You know why? Because you know so much more than John did. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. This is the apostles to the Jews in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Look at chapter 17 when the apostle Paul had an audience of Gentiles. Acts chapter 17, he's on Mars Hill with the Greek philosophers of Athens in the Areopagus. Verse 30, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at. You ignorant Gentiles, even though you think you're philosophers and wise, God considers you ignorant, and He winked at your ignorance in the past, but now commandeth all men, including Gentile Greek philosophers, everywhere to repent. To repent. To repent. 20, chapter 20 and verse 21. Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, Paul describing his ministry to the elders at Ephesus that he had testified both to the Jews and also to the Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. They better go together or your faith is nothing different than what a devil has. What have you repented from recently? Are you going to tell me that you haven't had anything in the last month to repent of? I don't have to go back a month. I don't have to go back a week. Repent. Don't thoughts enter your mind. You say, Lord, I hate that thought. That thought is wrong. I will not think that thought. I will think your thoughts. Does a word come out of your mouth? You say, I'm sorry I said that. Lord, forgive me for saying that. Lord, help us to repent. Help us to love repentance. Repentance is a totally different grace than faith. Repentance is a changed life. Look at all those believers that we ran into. Nowhere in the Bible does it describe people that repented in a Bible way that the Lord said He knew what was in man and He knew that wasn't for real. Because repentance is a changed lifestyle. Repentance is being transformed to the will and mind of God and not being conformed to this world. 
It is the essential first level evidence of eternal life that God has done a work of grace. Saying, I believe in Jesus. That is not a work of grace. Saying, Jesus has told me that fornication is uncleanness. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, I will not play sexually with anyone before I'm married. Now that's repentance. When you give up a relationship, when you give up a habit, when you throw away porn, when you get rid of novels, when you get rid of the internet, when you repent. What is repentance? It is the repudiation of a wrong lifestyle and the things that you did in it to do what is right. It is a change from this direction to that direction. It is a despising and a hatred of things there and a love of things here. It is backing away from that and running toward that. It is not hiding in the trees of the Garden of Eden. It is running to God and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I ate the fruit off the tree. Instead of saying, This woman that thou gavest me. I've heard the excuses. You've heard the excuses. These are men that don't have a work of grace. It doesn't matter what anyone's done to you. Run to Him and repent. Repent. Acts chapter 26. It is such a different thing. And there's a whole movement afoot today to get rid of it. I'm thankful for John MacArthur. That he still preaches repentance. Acts chapter 26 and verse 20. He's explaining to King Agrippa. That is the apostle Paul is explaining. The basis and nature of his ministry. But showed first unto them of Damascus. Because he was on the road to Damascus when he got started. And when he got started he went straight in the synagogue in Damascus. He was on his way there to get Christians and put them into prison. But the Lord, some little mix up happened on the way there. He gets there and he wants to get in the synagogue and he preaches Christ. But showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Does he sound like John the Baptist? Bring forth therefore works meet for repentance? This is the religion that we have. This is the religion of Christ. It's to repent. It's to throw stuff away and do what is right. It is to despise things that you have been doing and to choose to do things that God wants you to do. It is a gift from God. Anybody can believe, as we've just read a number of examples in John, because it's false belief. But look at Acts chapter 5 with me now. We're going to take another little run through Acts, and we're going to find out that it's a gift from God. What is there in your life right now that you could repudiate? Listen, brethren, you have something. We're not glorified yet. What is there that you could be doing better, should be doing better? What can you repudiate? What can you hate to show repentance in your life? Think about it with me. Ask the Lord, search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way, what's it called? The way everlasting. Because eternal life is being having something pointed out to you that you're doing wrong. And you rise up and you hate it. You pull out your sword like Samuel did. And you cut your agag in pieces. King Saul couldn't resist a fellow king standing before him and he preserved his life. Who can remember that sermon from 12 years ago? 
Samuel said, what is this man alive for? And Samuel the prophet pulled out his sword or asked for a sword. I don't know if he pulled it out or not. And hewed him to pieces. What is an agag in your life that you've let live when God said it should die? By recent events, I hate sin more than I have ever hated sin. Who's going to hate sin more than they have ever hated sin before with me? I want repentance in all the little things in my life that I should rip out and hew to pieces. And blessed be God, He has helped me rip out so many. Those little foxes that spoil the vine. The little sins that sneak in on us. Lord, show them to us and we'll chop them to pieces. Acts chapter 5 and verse 31. Peter is on trial with the other apostles and they said in verse 31, speaking of Jesus Christ, Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Notice, repentance is a gift from Christ even to Israel. Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Peter was called on the carpet in Jerusalem for having gone to the home of Cornelius. And when he gets done telling the story of how it took place, they concluded this way. Acts 11 verse 18. When they heard these things, they held their peace. They could no longer criticize Peter and glorified God saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life? Notice it's His granting. Repentance is a granting. And yes, He's granted it to us Gentiles. Us dumb Gentiles. Us Gentiles that have worshipped every conceivable object for our deity for 6,000 years. But he did it 2,000 years ago. We're just the recipients of it today. Praise his glorious name. Now one text before we break. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. You have standing before you a peradventure trophy. You have standing before you an object of peradventure. I was raised with the greatest opportunities the greatest examples of serving Jesus Christ. A conscience. But I opposed myself as a teenager. And I opposed anyone else that wanted to get in my way. But God took a peradventure on me. Amen. And I thank Him. Amen. This passage is part of a pastoral epistle. It is Paul inspired by the Holy Ghost, telling Timothy that even if you do your job perfectly, it needs a peradventure for anyone to be delivered from the devil. There's no residual power in preaching John 3.16 to get rid of the devil. God has to draw you to Christ. God must peradventure grant you repentance. 
saw the difference between faith, which is a devilish thing, and evidence of a work of grace in your life. I, I hope I've shown that briefly. This excites me. The devils have never repented. Have you ever repented of something and repudiated it and stomped on it and spit on it for the glory of God? Do you know what it says? Amen. It says that you're saved. Amen. It says you're saved. Just keep doing it. And let's do it more. Here's the apostles inspired wisdom to this young man, Timothy, about being a pastor. And the verse 24, the servant of the Lord must not strive. He's giving him his list of duties on how to be a good winner of souls. The servant of the Lord must not strive. Don't be a fighter. Don't argue and debate, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Timothy, no matter how well you present it, no matter if you don't fight, no matter if you're gentle, no matter if you have an aptitude to teach, no matter if you're patient, no matter if you're meek, they're going to keep opposing themselves unless there's this transaction. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. There is a devil in this world. He has a will and he can take men captive whenever he wants to and he can ensnare them and they cannot get away from him until God takes a peradventure on them. And when God takes a peradventure on them, bang, Saul of Tarsus will come up and say, Who art thou, Lord? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What a change. Is there that change in your life? That is the evidence of eternal life. What is there in your life right now that you can repudiate? Repudiate it with me. Let's get together and have a book burning. 50,000 pieces of silver was the value of books of witchcraft burned in the streets of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. That is repentance. That is salvation. Zacchaeus popped out that little short man, jumped out of that sycamore tree, and the crowd began to murmur because Jesus had said he wanted to go to the house and have lunch with Zacchaeus. And the crowd knew that Zacchaeus was an extortioner for the for Rome. And Zacchaeus said, Lord, Lord, I want you to come to my house for lunch. If I've wronged any man, I'll restore fourfold. And today, I promise to give 50% of all I have to the poor. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.